Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards. Today we are in conversation with Danielle Binks, who is a Melbourne-based writer and she's also a literary agent. In 2017, Danielle edited and contributed to Begin and Begin, which was an anthology of new young Australian adult writing and it was inspired by the hashtag LoveOzYA movement. She has also written The Year the Maps Changed and The Monster of Her Age, both for young audiences. We really look forward to getting down and dirty into the writing process and how a book gets published, as well as all of Danielle's works right now. Danielle Binks, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. We are so thrilled to have you with us. Today's episode is about innovation. And one thing all writers have had to do in the last... 18 months or so, is to be innovative about how and when they write and also how they promote what they've written. How's the pandemic impacted you so far? (laughs) You're catching me on the second day of CBCA Book Week, which has entirely moved to virtual. So it's been me trying to coral, like some sessions have been 200 kids on Zoom and I'm talking at them and I can see that there's chairs spinning. There's somebody who's got their bunny rabbit on the Zoom. Kids are really, it's tough for them doing virtual learning again. And book week is meant to be the fun part of being a kid. It's meant to be the week where you get to go a little bit silly and just talk about stories and imagination and dress up and have book week parade. And this is very different, but we're trying and it's going really well. And I love the sessions where I get to do workshops with the kids, where I give them writing prompts, where I break down stories for them and get them thinking about how do you actually put a story together? What are the building blocks of story? Why do we tell stories? What is the purpose of stories? What do you need to make a story a story? And then I get to have like a random word generator and pull out some words and say, cool, now go off and write or draw me a word. You know, I get to say, hey, how would you draw the word empty? what would you draw for the word empty? And I love the kids that show me a blank page and think that that's really smart because it kind of is (laughs) like kudos to you. Well done. But no, so it's second week of CBCA book week, a wonderful, beautiful Australian pastime that has once again, as it did last year, had to change and amalgamate and get a little bit innovative, but we're going through it. We're doing it. We're trying our best that we can. I see parents and teachers and librarians and guardians doing everything they can to engage kids in their at-home learning. And they're doing a brilliant job, even though I know we're all over it. They're just amazing to me. It's, it's incredible. I do not have any children. I am just zooming in as the talking head fun lady that's coming in for book week to give them a break from their screen time and get them to do, you know, if I see heads down writing, I'm really happy. Because that's a kid that's not just staring at a blank screen. They're actually going into their own heads a little bit and then trying to communicate an idea on their head onto the page. And that just delights me. And I love it when I give them the drawing words assignment and they get their piece of the paper and they hold it up to the screen. And I try and see, hey, you drew an actual sandwich. 
put the word sandwich. You drew a pointy hat and sand dunes for sandwich. That's amazing. That's a great way to interpret that word. So that really thrills and delights me. But yeah, it's hard. I'm also out here promoting my second book that had events cancelled for the second time in two years. Really tough, but we're all doing it, aren't we? We're just, you know, battling on. We are all doing it, but I have to say, I am glad I don't have to live with the pressure of being the funny person zooming in and being expected to keep 200 kids on Zoom occupied. So well done for even trying. I have no doubt that you will do that incredibly well. The listeners of our podcast are obviously adults. They are not young children, but you have written a book Mm -hmm. for middle grade readers and also your latest book for YA readers. You are chosen to go into schools for a reason because you are an adult who can somehow communicate with younger readers about things that do excite them. And not all adults can do that. So what do you think makes a kid excited? And more importantly, how do adults find that way to encourage the imagination of a kid? Oh my gosh, I love this question. And it's one that I've kind of been a little bit reflective of myself. I've been wondering myself, how the heck did I fall into this? How did I choose this? Oh my gosh. I consider it a great honor. I consider a huge honor that I'm writing for young people who are the toughest audience, whether it's primary school age, young people, secondary school age, young people. I do not create picture books because I think that is just beyond me. That is truly difficult in my mind. And I would not know how to go about creating that. But like I said, I do not have any children myself. I have nephews. I have two nephews who I love and adore, Harry and Max. (laughs) So for that reason, I think I come at kids a little bit differently. I'm somebody who constantly asks them questions. And I think kids really appreciate that. I think kids really appreciate being treated like they're little humans because they are. I think they really appreciate when I'm genuinely curious about them and when I encourage curiosity in them, when I say to them, hey, ask me anything, ask me absolutely anything. They absolutely love that. They love running a little bit rampant with me. And that's fantastic. Whether that's in a classroom setting or over Zoom, I try and encourage that. I try and encourage, you know, a little bit of thinking outside the box. But ultimately, especially with teenagers, which is kind of the readership that I gravitate towards the most, maybe, I do ask them, hey, what do you think? What stories haven't you read yet? What stories do you love? What are you thinking about the world right now? How do you want to see that interpreted in stories? I always ask them these questions. So I think that's the main thing is, you know, I I once had it put to me brilliantly by Morris Glidesman who I interviewed once is one of of my childhood heroes, who is just a beautiful writer for young people. But I kind of asked him once, like, why does he do it? Why do you write for young people? And what's your limit when writing for them? When do you know you've gone too far or what is enough? And he put it to me so beautifully when he said, if it's in the world, it's for them. And that just kind of blew my mind. I thought, wow, if it's in the world, it's for them. So that's the limit I've given myself. And of course, you as a writer, you change that in the language you use, in the scenes that you describe, the lens through which you tell a story. Of course, that puts limits on it and you do in yourself know where you wouldn't cross. But if it's in the world, it's for them. And I kind of take that into my stories as well. You know, my stories are kind of a little bit sad. They're very heroic. I do show kids being their own heroes in my stories. That's probably a thread that carries through because I think I want to communicate that idea of curiosity and actually asking kids what their minds are, what their own thoughts are. I want to communicate that in my characters and that comes out in making them the heroes of their stories. So there's no adults swooping in and telling them this is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to fix things. It's kids figuring out themselves. And it's also kids in all my stories so far, it's kids figuring out that adults don't have all the answers and actually that they have very different opinions to the adults in their lives. And I think that again comes back to when I read something that totally unlocked this for me, John Steinbeck's East of Eden, one of my favorite books of all time. 
he kind of said this beautiful quote, you can take from what you will, but I think this is absolutely the thinking that I apply to my own writing and how I interact with kids as well, or how I want kids to interact in my stories, what I want to represent of them in the world. So it's from East of Eden. When a child first catches adults out, when it first walks into his grave little head, the adults do not have all divine intelligence. Their judgments are not always wise. Their thinking true, their sentences just. His world falls into panic desolation. The gods are fallen and all safety gone. And there is one sure thing about the fall of gods. They do not fall a little. They crash and shatter or sink deeply into green muck. It is a tedious job to build them up again. They never quite shine. And the child's world is never quite whole again. It is an aching kind of growing. I think I always try and represent an aching kind of growing. I think I always try and remember that, hey, it's tough being a kid. You have to remember to ask them their feelings about things and their opinions about things because they absolutely have them and they're still trying to figure them out. They absolutely know where their moral compass is pointing, thereabouts. So I take from John Steinbeck and I also take from Morris Gleitzman when he said, if it's in the world, it's for them. But he also, Morris Gleitzman also acknowledged that young people are often treated smaller because they're physically smaller. People assume that their interior worlds and their thoughts are smaller too, just because they're little. And that's not at all accurate. That's not at all accurate. And it's really quite rude to treat kids that way. That just because they're physically smaller, that their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions are smaller too. That's not at all the case. So that's how I tackle kids. That's how I tackle kids as an auntie. (laughs) That's how I tackle my auntie pride. That's how I tackle kids that I write for. When I meet kids, I treat them more like their worlds are as big as they totally absolutely are. And I think that probably comes down to a respect. I have great respect for kids. And I think you have to, if that's your audience, you have to respect them. You have to be curious about them and let them speak for themselves when they want to. Danielle, we're well into our conversation and we haven't yet asked you to tell us a little bit about your books because we usually do that at the top of the podcast because, of course, our audience haven't always read every author. Indeed, part of the purpose of this podcast is to expose people to authors that they might not have come across yet. So could you start by telling us maybe a little bit about The Monster of Her Age and then we'll move We'll move on through the episode. So The Monster of Her Age is set in 2019. So I just bypassed the pandemic entirely. So in 2019, and it's set in Hobart. It is based on this made up family of Tasmanian thespians who have a long history reaching into all Australian theatre works and film and television. And there's this matriarch of the family called Lottie Lovinger. And the youngest of the family is Lottie's granddaughter, who is Ali Marsden. And Ali and Lottie appeared in a horror film together when Ali was 11 and she played the child monster. Think Linda Blair in The Exorcist, who I actually quote at the beginning of The Monster of Her Age. I loved Linda Blair's line, that the exorcist has been a very interesting cross to bear. So Ali appeared in this made up horror film where she was the child monster. She didn't have a great experience in the film set. She was under the thumb of a pretty despotic director and she had her fame hungry grandmother who didn't really protect her emotionally. So she had a pretty awful experience. And then she and Lottie haven't really reconnected since. But when Ali is 17, Lottie is dying. And it's part of their Jewish religion that all the family have to come home and sit vigil as Lottie slowly winds down. And in choosing to do that, Ellie comes home and tries to forgive her grandmother and kind of piece their past together. But at the same time, she's still very angry at her and very hurt by her and dealing with a lot of grief as well. And at the same time, being a teenager, 
she goes to a party and she meets a young woman called Rhea, who is the head of a feminist horror film club called uh, Fright Night for Final Girls. And in meeting and befriending and possibly a bit mooring with Rhea, she starts to unwind the purpose of the horror genre, the purpose of art in our lives generally. And she starts to see herself as part of a much larger history. And she starts to realise the way that she can maybe talk about her emotions in a clearer way. That is the monster of her age. You have put so much into that one book. There is the family and forgiveness and passing away. There is the purpose of art. There is feminism and the horror genre and feminism in and of itself. There is coming of age and being a teenager and figuring out what the hell life is and how it can be done and negotiated. What feedback do you get from your readers? And I know it's a relatively new book out, so you won't have got huge amounts necessarily, and we are in COVID, but... Like I remember when I was a teenager and how much I wanted to be an adult and read real stories Mm -hmm. of real experiences. And so often when I walk into a bookstore or look online, everything seems to be talking down to Mm. teenagers, particularly younger Mm -hmm. teenagers. And everything that you've just said is not talking down. It's giving these young adults a full entry into the world. What feedback are they giving you and why are they drawn into the worlds that you create? The feedback for the monster of her age, the two prongs of feedback I'm getting the most of is they love that it's a queer story, which it is. Ellie and Rhea, spoiler alert, fall for each other. Ellie identifies as bisexual. So that's representative of me and my life and what I wanted to read as a teenager. And I'm loving that teenagers are saying, oh my gosh, I love this. It's not a coming out story. It's just two girls who meet each other at possibly the wrong time because Ellie's going through a lot, but you know, there are no convenient times to fall for somebody and they do. And young people are really loving that. I'm also hearing from young girls, in particular teenage girls, that they love that it kind of addresses gaslighting. This idea of Ali's family have kind of manipulated her into thinking that her experience in the film set wasn't that bad. Her grandmother has manipulated her into thinking, we don't need to tell the authorities about this. Nothing really happened. The bullying that you experienced in school as a repercussion of appearing in this film wasn't as bad. That was the kids just trying to show their admiration for you as an actor, etc. So she's really gaslit again and again and again, even by her own mother. And I'm hearing young people appreciating hearing that and also appreciating hearing that family can love you but also hurt you, which is a really complex idea. This idea that, hey, you're allowed to love somebody who's also hurt you deeply. And that kind of goes hand in hand with this idea of, hey, you can grieve for somebody and also acknowledge that you haven't wrapped up all of your very complex feelings for them. Like somebody can be gone and you can miss them and you can love them. You can also still be really angry at them. And I totally get that it's hard to know where to put that anger once they're gone. You know, what is the vessel through which you overcome that feeling? Maybe you just don't. Maybe you just have to live with those complications inside yourself and it just becomes part of your character and who you are. And young people are telling me really wonderfully in various forms across reviews and stuff that this is one of the first books that gives them that write that passage to acknowledge that, to say, hey, we're allowed to be complex and hey, no emotion has like an endpoint, which I love. I'm trying to talk about in this, that this idea that grief doesn't have, I mean, in Judaism, grief does have stages. Very technically, the stage you get to a funeral, there are certain rites and rituals you've got to go through, but grief itself is ongoing. You know, it's an ocean that ebbs and flows. And I think young people are appreciating talking about that, especially because I think Young people today have got so much more nuance and understanding of grief and trauma, for one thing. They're being encouraged to talk about it in school settings even, which is just incredible. 
But especially after these last two years, they're starting to acknowledge that grief is ongoing and that grief has many facets to it. And it does, it ebbs and flows. And that is more pronounced than ever in lockdown. You have good days and bad days. You have days where you think, oh, I'm doing this. It's okay, I'm totally doing this. And then you have days where you watch the Qantas ad five times in a row and you just weep and you think, wow, what triggered that? You kind of have to side eye yourself and say, could it possibly be the global pandemic? <laughs> Maybe that is why. So I'm, I'm hearing from young people that they like the complexity of seeing different sorts of relationships on the page, which I love. I totally wrote that for myself and my teenage self as well. And they're just liking the complexity of emotion and especially of trauma, which comes in many forms and can be instigated by many people in your life. I was about to say, I was reading some other interviews and things you've written, Danielle, but really I was stalking you before this conversation, stalking with the best of intentions. And I understand that grief played a really enormous role in your life when you were editing this book. Yeah. I am very conscious as an author who sometimes writes about trauma that just because you've talked about something one day doesn't mean you want to talk about it today. But have your personal circumstances impacted the writing, particularly during that that editing phase? Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm good talking about it because I realize that I haven't I put a lot of it into the onto the page. And now having to talk about it, it's having to re-assimilate it in a different way. It's trying to figure out how it fits within me now in a different amalgamation with more time passing as well, which I think is really important. But basically, I started writing this story, The Monster of Her Age, in December 2019, went to Hobart, went on a research trip, had a great time, wrote this story about a dying grandmother thinking this is so different from my life. I'm not from a famous family. I don't even live in Hobart. This is a very different story from what my first story was, which the year the maps changed was kind of, I took a lot from my own family life, set where I grew up, etc. I wanted a different story that I could just really be in my imagination. And I thought, this is great. This is so different from me. A dying grandmother in Hobart, thespian family, totally not me. And then my grandmother passed away in January and it was a slow winding down across a week. She was just very old. And we sat vigil with her and that was really tough. And then the pandemic hit and that was really tough. And then in about July of 2020, April, June, July, my uncle was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He went through a 12 hour surgery, which was really tough. And then pretty soon after that, like a week or so, he had bloods taken and they said, it's already back. You're not going to stay out the year. (sighs) And he made the decision as he was able to do voluntary assisted dying, which we were all so grateful for in Victoria. This was his third round of cancer, his third round of cancer. And it was the one that got him. But he chose that voluntary assisted dying in December Again, that was such a different vigil. That was a very different form of grief. My grandmother, it was kind of fast, you know, it was over a week, but it was still expected. So we were kind of expected to be sad, but also expected to it to come. And then my uncle was just a very different form of grief and dying. It happened both fast and slow. And I put all of that into the book. I think at one point in the book, I try and explain grief like being in an airport terminal, (laughs) you know, like you're constantly waiting for a flight or waiting for somebody else's flight to come. 
and I put all of that into the book because yeah, I had to write a book. I had a deadline, but at the same time I had my publisher saying, Hey, you don't have to do this. You're going through a lot. You're in Melbourne lockdown. You've had two big losses in your life. And they did change the release date for me, which I was very appreciative of, but I pushed through for better or worse. I pushed through and said, look, I'm feeling a lot of feelings. And if I don't put them down on the page, I don't know where to put them. So that's all in the book. It's all in the book. Can I just say, Danielle, how brave that is to do? Because I think it is one thing to write your grief, whether you are writing it through someone else in fiction or writing it as yourself in nonfiction. That's a brave thing to do in itself. But I have notes taken from uh, when I was experiencing trauma that I thought one day I'll use these for a book. Mm. And it has taken me years to use them because the doing of that writing, let alone the putting it into the world, has just felt too much. But I think there's something about writing it in the moment and editing it in in the moment when you're still feeling it, when it's fresh, when you haven't come to terms with it, when you don't have new perspective. There is an authenticity to that that is really special, but also that's really tough on the author. I wanted to push through as well because once you're going through it, it's that Eleanor Roosevelt thing of just keep going, right? But I also kind of knew that I wanted it's going to sound really weird, but I wanted like an artistic keepsake of what I went through that year. And that's what the book has become. It's this really weird, bizarre time capsule of what I went through. And I have reread it since like in book form, in finished book form. And I've thought, Oh wow, I can remember when I wrote certain moments and how sad I was, but also when I wrote certain happy moments, how much I was clinging to that, how much I wanted that. That's why there's a romance in the book. Cause I clearly needed that. I needed that as a little raft out of my grief, you know, a little reprieve for some. So the monster for age has become this, yeah, it's this kind of relic of what I thought was going to be a pandemic year come and gone, but of course it's still ongoing. And even that is kind of reflective of the fact that I released the book during a lockdown as well has also become kind of reflective of when I wrote it. So it's kind of this weird full circle, but I remember very clearly when I was talking to my publisher and saying, no, I really want to try and do this. I was remembering that I did want to keep those keepsakes of my grief and I wanted proof that I could write through it, that I could put it on the page and make some sort of purpose out of it, which you don't always have to do. Your grief doesn't have to have that sort of purpose, but you don't have to be Shakespeare writing King Lear or whatever the hell he did during the Black Plague. You know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be constantly on and creating and outputting. But that is what helped me in that very unique moment where sometimes art imitates life and sometimes life imitates art. And it was this really weird back and forth for me. And I wanted to keep that for myself. And that's what the book has become. And I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud that it's now this testament to what I went through and what I came out the other side of. Danielle, thank you so much for being with us on Anonymous Was a Woman. The time has gone far too quickly, which means we'll just have to have you back again. I would love to come back on. I could talk to you both forever and ever. This has been an absolute delight in a, in a kind of bleak book week, but this has been a lovely little tribute to talking to two fabulous ladies about stories and young people. And what a tribute to book week. That's what book week is all about, right? It's young people and stories and making sure that they get good ones and can tell their own. Incredible. Thank you for having me.
That's all we've got time for on Anonymous Was a Woman today. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate your attention and your ears. To make sure that you don't miss the next episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. When you're there, you might want to leave a rating and a very kind review. Astrid and I read all of them, so please do that. (laughs) We are brought to you this season by Hachette Publishing, who continue to be wonderful supporters of Anonymous Was a Woman, and we are made by Bad Producer Productions and Future Women. They're good people. Bye.